Welcome to Dr. Green Speaks. What's up, family? You know who I be. It's the kid again, Dr. Green. Yeah, you heard it. Listen. Bridging the gap between scholars. Read more books than the curriculum profile. Doctors, athletes, and pop culture influencers. <laughs> Major show alert. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. And now, Dr. Green Speaks. Bring them out. What's up, family? You know who I be. It's the kid again, Dr. Green. Yep, listen. Today I have as a guest someone that can only be described as an icon within the African-American experience. She provides what some would suggest is an antidote for the ills of the African-American in America. She is the first person to be identified as suggesting that Emmett Till was the catalyst for the civil rights movement. Um, she is the creator of the theory of Africana womanism. It is a family-centered Afrocentric paradigm that prioritizes race, class, and gender in the collective struggle of Africans for racial parity. Today we have Dr. Clonora Hudson Weems. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Well, the pleasure is absolutely <laughs> all mine. As I said, um, you are um, one of the greatest um, of our intellectual um, scholars um, that has done decades of work that is so relevant um, to where we stand as a people um, mm -hmm. today. And um, I think I, I, I'm not being, I'm not overstating the fact that I think you provide the blueprint for how we can get to um, a, a greater place and position mm -hmm. individually and as a people. So for those of my listeners that are not familiar with your work, um, can you explain to them what is Africana womanism? Africana womanism, Africana womanism, basically, is a theoretical construct, a methodology, a paradigm, a concept, whatever you want to call it. It is real. It's a global concept that, um, first of all, is family-centered, and that's very important because it differs from a lot of other female-based constructs as being uh, number one, okay? Africana womanism prioritizes uh, race, class, and gender. So there you have it. But it starts with the family. It's about the entire family, men, women, and children, not just uh, gender exclusivity or even gender first. Uh, the first, uh, we have to look at uh, the family, and that is very key to the concept of Africana womanism. It's our own unique, our own unique, and I would say authentic way of being and thinking and acting. That's, who that's, that, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So when you say authentic, right, can you can you tell me a little bit about what the priorities of Africana womenism are? Like what, what would you say are the, the main priorities? Number one <clears throat> is the whole uh, race factor. See, some people want to play the race factor down and say, oh, you're playing the race card, you know, but the race card has already been played. It's been played for centuries. That's the whole point. So what we want to do is to address it and to make sure that we correct those uh, things that racially have been uh, holding us down. 
holding us back, keeping us from moving forward. And so that's why when I talk about African womanism and the privatization thereof, I'm talking about race, class, and gender. In other words, it's a race matter. First, let's get that out of the way first before we can begin. And I think that uh, Sojourner Truth does an excellent job in her oration in uh, 1852 in Akron, Ohio, at an all-women's convention. Uh, basically, a couple of men in there, but there were white women. That's that's the whole thing. And so no one wanted to hear her because she was Black. She was among the community of women. But the first thing she had to clear up was a space for herself as a human being, race first, before she can begin to articulate uh, the problems of gender. Uh, and then even uh, a class. Class is right behind race, of course. So with African womanism, you're talking about the prioritization of race, class, and gender. Take care of that first. Then you can move to the next one and the next one. It's no okay. such thing to me as being um, all these things simultaneously dealt with. You know, it's like, what do you do first? You open your eyes in the morning. That's the first thing you do before you can move forward. And it's as simple as that. That's important. That's important. But it, it sounds very similar, right, to what people um, would argue is intersectionality. But you, you create a clear delineation between intersectionality and interconnectedness. Can you um, can you tell me why interconnectedness fits better than what people um, when people talk about uh, intersectionality? We might even though I, uh, I've been using the term inter interconnectedness uh, for over three decades since the eighties. You'll see articles that I've written that that specifically use the terminology interconnectedness. Okay. So uh, when I talk about interconnectedness, I'm talking about a matter of coming together. And once you get there and you're going to be there because that's the way it is, we come together and we hold on. We're like fabric interwoven, not to be separated and to tr be treated separately. Any entity, uh, any idea or any piece of our being that we're uh, addressing, it's fine, but it's interconnected. That is how Sojourner Truth does so well with an art our woman. You cannot separate her being uh, black from her being a woman because she's defined by both. They are interconnected. Same thing with, with uh, gender. It is. It just keeps coming together. So main thing you need to uh, remember with interconnectedness is that we come together to stay together to work it out. That's it. And we're like woven. We're like fabric coming together, sticking together. Once you pull a piece of that thread out, it begins to crumble. We don't need that. With intersectionality, uh, on the other hand, uh, you're talking about uh, a, a matter of coming together and then at some point branching off and focusing on one thing at a time. We can't afford to separate and then talk about one thing at a time. When you talk about one thing, you're also talking about the other. It's just that simple. And that's what differentiates African womanism's interconnectedness from uh, from the feminist intersectionality. There's room for uh, for everybody's um, you know ideal or way of being. Uh, it's just that intersectionality is not workable, it's not feasible, and it's not a corrective for us in our situations. It just doesn't work. Well, that's a that's a that's, that's, a, that's a deep that's statement. statement. Well, you know, the interesting thing is I got a, a quote in my uh, book, Africana Womanism Reclaiming Ourselves, the, the uh, fifth edition, which is a, a reprint of the classic that came out in 1993. Uh, this new uh, Africana Womanism Reclaiming Ourselves by Rutledge has um, five new 
uh, chapters in part three. We only had two parts for the first one, first uh, edition. Uh, this has uh, this has three editions. The last mm-hmm. one is when I start talking about this whole thing of inter- interconnectedness. Uh, uh, when I verses in a sense inter uh, inter um, sexuality and some other issues. Okay, but what uh, what I wanted to say essentially is that this whole thing of Africana womanism. All you need to do is to get the book and start reading. Everybody who reads it or who has heard me speak, and I've been in and out of the country, they would say, wow, you know what? I knew that there was something more relatable for me out there. It just hadn't come forth, you know. And there was a, uh, one of the journalists out in, um, in South Africa has an article uh, that says uh, why Africa relates to African womanism. You have it all the time. And I remember when I first introduced African womanism. I first called it black womanism in my 86. I was in Boston at the National Council of Black Studies because I, I was tired of women always uh, identifying themselves as uh, as feminists. And I knew that we were not on the uh, we were not on the agenda. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why are you forcing yourself on somebody else's agenda and wanting to be in the forefront of it? You, you can't because mm-hmm. the, the white woman designed it on the basis of her needs and she's going to deal with her priorities. And it makes sense. That's what we do. But at the same time, I should have the sense to know that I've got to create my own as well. If I want my gender to be there and to be treated uh, in uh, according to its priorities, then I must make sure that I'm shaping that. And that's why I took it upon myself. And women right away said, I knew that other one wasn't fit. I just I just wanted something better. I said, why didn't you do it? <laughs> I'm busy. I was at the University of Iowa at the time as a National Ford Fellow working on my Ph.D., and I was, my thing was Emmett Till, as you know, the first to establish Till as catalyst of the civil rights movement in 88, that dissertation. But I'm saying that I was busy doing the other side or the flip side of the coin, the male factor. OK. Mm-hmm. And so I said, uh, but, you know, what? coming to these conferences and hear you uh, in a procrustean manner, try to make this thing fit and it's not fitting. I'm saying, why are you doing it? There's nothing sacred about the terminology. Create mm-hmm. your own terminology and then put mm-hmm. into that all the elements that you want uh, on the basis of what you have observed. That's what I did. I observed us going back to antiquity and this is who we are. And so I enumerated those things because I knew it would work because it has always worked for us. It is always. And, and that's something that's really important in, in your work. You talk about self-meaning, right? So um, there are people that self-identify as feminists. There are people that self-identify as black feminists. And one of the things that you pointed out is the importance of being able to describe ourselves or describe yourself using your own terminology and your own theoretical framework without um, relying on something that has been created that at the beginning did not have us in mind. Can you speak to um, the ways in which you you articulate um, self-naming? Um, as as a priority. Yeah, it's very important because we know that words are loaded with meanings and people remember that, you know. I, I'm, I make a simple thing and I was at Cornell University. It was really interesting and I made that analogy. I said, you know, I, I, I absolutely adore the way I was introduced. I, I felt good about it. But they, they I could have just as well been introduced as Doctor, after they said all they wanted to say, and they said, "I bring to you, Doctor Hudson Weems, uh, the prostitute." Okay, just say that. Well, 
I mean, nobody is going to be listening to me trying to qualify, clarify, amplify just what was meant in using that terminology because they're too busy dealing with me as the prostitute. Like, I know exactly what she does. I know when she does it, etc. We don't have time for that. When you give a name, that name is already loaded with meanings. That's the first thing you have to realize. So for that reason, we have to create a name that is free to be whatever we want to put into it. I put into it 18 distinct features or characteristics of the African womanist. I couldn't do that with a name that already has all of its everything already in it. So if you're any element, any part of a feminist uh, uh, identity, that means it's going to, for the most part, dealing with it historically, it is gender exclusivity. Can we afford that? Could we have gotten out of slavery um, without uh, coming together and being together and working together to overcome or overthrow that which was holding us down? No, it takes uh, both of us or all of us uh, to, to come together to make it happen. So I'm saying the terminology is very important because it obviously, and it always has, had both connotations and denotations. It has meanings that you cannot dismiss yourself from. And I'm saying to myself, just remember when you take it back to the beginnings with African or with feminism, you know, a part of the suffragist movement, that was the beginning. I mean, think about what happened in 1870. Okay, just think about that. When black men were for the first time given the right to vote, right? This was this was very important. Black men can now vote. 1870, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified, granting that. We were very happy. We celebrated. We baked cookies and had lemonade and all that bit. We were so excited because we knew that, that our male companions were going to come home and say, listen, this is what we have. Okay, let's decide. Which one is the best for us, this community? That's simple. White women, on the other hand, were very disappointed. And of course, understandably so, because they were a part of the, uh, many of them, of the abolitionist movement, because they knew that what they had in common was the fact that they like black, the blacks in general. The white women had uh, uh, a second class citizenship because they were denied the right to vote. That's what they wanted. And it makes sense. But there was no reason, I think, for uh, the, the racist uh, language that came out of that. These biological inferiors, you know, who are now um, uh, able to vote and we still aren't voting. I mean, is that is that something to uh, to be up, uh, that upset over? You know, and I, and I like to read. So I like people to understand what uh, the, this movement came out of in 1800s. You have Carrie Chapman Catt, for example. And, and other women, of course, of persuasion, who were strong Anglo-Saxon uh, value carriers, right? And white supremacy. I'm saying that, but listen on. When you look at the book by uh, the historians David David Carroll, uh, David Noble, rather, I'm sorry, and uh, Peter Carroll, in the book called The Free and the Unfree, and I'm going to quote what, what uh, Carrie uh, Chapman Cat had to say. She says, there is but one way to avert the danger. Cut off the vote, okay? of the slums, which includes blacks and other uh, immigrants who were not of, uh, of uh, um, a British, uh, you know, blood, okay? And give it to white women. That's what she says, end quote. And she goes on to say that uh, the middle-class white men must recognize, what must, must he recognize? She says, quote, the usefulness of woman suffrage 
as a counterbalance to the foreign vote. Foreigns mean other than, um, you know, the British that she's talking about. And as a means of legally preserving white supremacy in the South. Now tell me, is that racist or not? White supremacy? I didn't say that. This is what Carrie Chapman Cat said. Now, why would I want to name myself after an organization or a concept that has such a venomous beginning for blacks? I'm saying that while I understand why uh, the, the women were interested in certain things, what I don't understand is why black women are holding their hands up to be a part of it. When I think about Susan B. Anthony, who's very, very uh, visible with this uh, this this uh, movement, this suffragist movement, uh, she made some statement about blacks. She said she wouldn't give a, a, a limb or anything for a black person to, to save or to rescue a black. In the story, we're talking about during slavery. Okay. Uh, this that I just read, of course, is after slavery. Slavery, uh, the, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed December, uh, January 1st, rather, of 19, 1863. But even so, you're talking about just a few years down the road. Uh, when the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. Still, you have that uh, post-slavery uh, mentality that was going on. And so we have to realize that we were not on the agenda. The The decade before that was uh, a sojourner truth. They hissed at her and jeered at her. And she dared to come to the front to articulate the absurdity of female subjugation. But before she could do that, she came to do it. She had the first clear space for herself as a human being. We were three-fifths human being considered, and that was it. She was not welcomed, and she had to make sure that she puts, presented herself and, and Africana people as just other people in general and give us a space as well. That's what she went there for, is mm -hmm. to, uh, to talk about the absurdity of excluding us. And so mm -hmm. there you have it. That's, that's brilliant and beautiful, and I appreciate you sharing that with, with us, um, Dr. Hudson Means. Um, so, so if I'm understanding this correctly, if I'm, I'm hearing you say that um, family centrality is exactly is more important than female centrality. Oh, definitely, absolutely. Wow, that's that's, that's powerful. And a lot of people that would hear that are going to say, "What is she talking about? Can you can you?" Just delve into that a little, a little deeper. Like how, how, how you came to that that understanding? Because you know there are those that'll disagree and say that you know women should be concerned with their womanhood first and their race second. Or okay. um, can you can you explain why you think that's that's problematic? If I were white, I wouldn't, because they don't have a problem with uh, racial. Uh, uh, dominance. There's nothing. Uh, they are the ones who uh, dominate, period. So if I were white, then there would be no issue about race. Uh, class, you know, I can go as far as I can, as I choose to go or as I work towards going, okay? But uh, for black people, I can't imagine a woman putting uh, anything before the family, especially when she's talking about her children and her male companion. They are a part of her reality. A very important part of the reality. Can I can I concentrate on myself as a woman and what I need when black men and black children are right there dying or suffering right before my eyes? And I'm talking about gender. <laughs> I would have to be very, very cold to do that. Uncaring, unloving, and almost inhumane. 
to think about other than my family first. I can't imagine it. I'm sorry. I did not create Africana womanism in and of itself. I simply observed the Africana people worldwide, historically speaking, uh, socially, politically, the whole thing, culturally. We have always been, what I'm saying here with these 18 characteristics is simple. We, it's just as simple as that. All I did was to name, give us a name, okay, and define a paradigm relative to that reality. I didn't create it. And that's why everywhere I go, whether it's in the Caribbean, even in, I remember going to the University of Hamburg in Germany, same thing. There was a large group of women there who were uh, of mixed heritage, um, uh, African and, um, and uh, European. And uh, they said that, you know, hey, this is what we need to hear to help save our families. That's what they said. We are here to hear you because you can help us save our families because some women are derailing and going on the other side. But it's about me first. Well, it's not about you, whether you think so or not, because there is that, that, that there's that continuum of you that comes with the what future generations, your children, your children's children. You know, if it's all about you, it's over once you die and we all do. So what do you do then? What happens to the next generation? We have to make sure that we properly nurture, and those are these are two other characteristics, mother and nurture our children so that the uh, the human race can continue in a very positive way and in an evolving way. We have to get better, not worse. We have to keep growing and stronger. So we so first of all, I want all of my viewers to make sure you go and buy the book, and we're gonna include a link so that you can purchase this book, Africana Womanism. But can you just um, briefly go through, I, I know you said there are many characteristics and features. I think you said there are 18 of them. So this yes. is something that obviously is um, well thought out. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> um, and, well and, and observed. <laughs> well observed, thank you, well observed. And um, can, can you tell some of our listeners um, about um, the the tenets or the the characteristics of, okay. of of Africana womanism. Okay. Well, as we said, I start off with self naming. Name yourself. Define yourself. You know, Toni Morrison does an excellent uh, uh, commentary on the fact that during slavery we were not we were not given the privilege to define ourselves. She says in her uh, a Nobel no that was the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, novel. Be, um, beloved, she says definitions, this is what I say, she says her narrator says, doing slavery now definitions belonged to the definers not the defined we were the defined whites defined the blacks, so you were, you know, you were a stud if you were a male, you were the baby breeder if you were a female, you were, you were the slave you were all those things that kept you in a subservient position, okay you were defined by the other, it is past time that we define our name ourselves and define ourselves. Because if you don't do that, somebody else is going to do it. And it's always done not so complimentary for you. It's something that fits what they want. Okay. So you name, define yourself, family centered. That's three. Okay. Also, there is a, a very important thing that I think that we all have to realize this genuine sisterhood is for real. And I say genuine, this is an asexual relationship between women because we help each other get through things. You know how we are. We listen to uh, the, the joys that we have in life, but we also listen to the woes and we try to help to advise our girlfriends about certain things so they don't go 
uh, down the wrong road. And even if it means you're risking a friendship, because sometimes you do, you're going to do it because it's all about doing it for your sister. You know, your sister, what, and then what happened? And then, and then this happened and I couldn't stand anymore. And then you find yourself crying more than her because you've so empathized with what is going on. So this whole friendship that we're talking about, we realize that I got your back, girl. You know, if you got to do something and you can't do it, I'll do it for you. If the kids need to be picked up and you're having to work overtime and my time allows it, then I'm going to do it. That's what we do. We advise each other. This is that um, that uh, that confidant that you absolutely have to have who can help you uh, get through life and resolve some of the issues that you yourself have not been able to, uh, to, to do. Okay, and that we are very strong. We're talking about not only physical strength. That's why I don't. I'm not interested in this um, picture with this woman holding up her fist and her uh, arms. You know, like here are my muscles and that type. Who cares? You know, who cares about the muscles? You know, uh, but we have also psychological and uh, emotional strength. Uh, we have to be strong for the family and for ourselves to hold it together. If things are crumbling, we're there. Okay, that we are also in concert. With the males in the struggle, we have to realize that this this liberation struggle that we've been in for centuries, okay, it's men and women together. We are not a part of this idea of the battle of the sexes. I mean, <laughs> that has nothing to do with us. The battle of the sexes has absolutely nothing to do with black women necessarily in their homes if they keep their priorities right. It's about us as a family, and the extended family becomes a part of that reality. That we are whole and authentic means that we are well-rounded. We are not a flat stereotype anything. That we are a full-blown human being that operates uh, on a personal basis, on an intellectual basis, a professional basis. We do all of that, you know. Uh, so that whole thing of whole and uh, authenticity means that we keep the culture uh, rooted in its origins. Okay, so it is uh, authentic because it's natural for you as an African people to be interconnectedness, say, for example. Okay, to be always realizing that we win when we stay together and when we enter together, that we are flexible role players. That's very important. Flexible role players. Yeah. We don't have to have a room of one's own, for example, that Virginia Woolf calls for when she uh, wants to have the, the white gloves and the key to the office where she can go off and become the intellectual or the, uh, the business person that she wants to be. No, we can do it like Toni Morrison, for example. She could be cooking and have the kid on one hip and stirring the food here and then taking a break and looking at the book or jotting down something, writing something because she's a writer. OK, she didn't have to. You know, that flexible role player, that kitchen becomes, for example, the study and that table becomes the desk and when the kids are put away. You see, that's that flexible role playing that you go on. And I always tell people, you know, I never had to. Uh, I don't like doing certain things. You know, we, we respect certain roles. We know that. But we're not casting it and, and trapped in it forever. Uh, say, for example, if your spouse is not at home at a conference or whatever, you know, you see, wow, he's uh, not here, but the garbage has to be empty. Then you get some muscles and get the garbage out. You know, it's nice when he's there to do it because you're enjoying the cooking and everything. I like traditional roles. I love it. I don't have a problem with it. But it's not like you come home and say, well, what's for dinner? Because you don't smell anything. I said, well, simple. Do you smell it? It must not be here. I guess the next question is, sweetheart, 
you should be asking me, what do you want to do for dinner? You want to go here or that or whatever? That's the way it is because we're in it together. Always remember the in it together. And you know what? I've been saying in it together. This is my poem that I dedicated to all African people in night and I'm sorry, 2009. Uh, I was en route to the first uh, national African Womanism Summit uh, in Pittsburgh. And I had a flight uh, change two hour layover uh, in uh, uh, in uh, Wisconsin. And so I wrote this poem, uh, I Got Your Back Boo. African woman is not got your back boo. If we have time, I'd like to read that to you. But it opens oh. up the first line of that. This is in, nine, in 2009. Don't you know by now, girl, we are all in it together. We're all in it together. Family centrality, that's it. We're going nowhere without the other. That means the men, the women, and the children too. Truly collectively working, I got your back boo. That's it. It's four, three more stanzas after that. One, the second, yeah. second one addresses racism and classism and uh, sexism. It doesn't mean sexism, not the sex or the gender is not important. We're talking about prioritization. That's all. There's a difference. What do you do first? So right. you move from um, flexible role player to being respected and recognized. And this is very key. We always insist upon being respected and recognized. But what we have to understand also is that those characteristics are reciprocal. You know, I've heard women say, you know what? I'm telling you, these men, I just can't stand them. They get on my nerves. All these men, they, they do this and that. They're all dogs. They can't respect women. I say, excuse me. How is it that you expect to respect when you can't render it? You must be, well, you're kidding. That's all. We'll say it like that. I won't get too, you know, hard on you. But you got to recognize that you can't talk about a person and put them down and call them an animal. And at the same time, you want some respect. It's reciprocal. Give it. Heave it up. That's very important. And then we go on to spirituality. I don't care what your religion is. That's your business. But you have to understand that if you look around, you've got to, you know, got to know that there's something bigger than us as human beings that's in control of this universe. They are things that are inexplicable. And plus the fact I'm comfortable knowing that there's a greater being, that there's there's a greater being that is in control. Because at some point I say, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't imagine. We're in the midst of something right now that we can't even understand this uh, pandemic. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's scary. And I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not going to give up because there's a God out there and he knows what buttons to push and when to push them. So there it is. I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. We move from that to the idea of uh, male and female compatibility. That's very key. And I tell people, please understand, this is not a dialogue or monologue on sexuality. I don't care what your sexual preference is. That's your business. It needs to stay that way. Your business is not mine. I have my own to take care of. But I must say that the only way the human race is going to continue is with male-female interaction on some level. So you better be glad somebody's doing something. You understand? <laughs> and it's like this. Uh, well, I remember hearing this woman, this is years ago on TV, saying, well, and if you just have to have kids, just go to the sperm bank. You don't need the man for that. Excuse me. Can you please tell me where the sperm that's in the sperm bank came from? Okay. And this notion of, well, I don't even want to go any further than that. I'm just simply saying that we have to realize that in order for the human race to perpetuate itself, there has to be some type of uh, connection there between the male and the female. And so, so we have to respect it. 
uh, that we uh, must be respectful of elders. You know, my students were looking at um, guys on the prize this week. Uh, they looked at the the the, the uh, opening or the awakening. Uh, they looked at the section I ain't scared now. Or, you know, the whole thing. And they were like, wow, blacks went through a whole lot during the civil rights movement. I said, exactly. They left saying, I have another attitude now towards the seniors. By you know, first I was saying, well, you know, what did they do? Well, now I see what they did. They were young like we are, and they fought for their rights. And so you have to respect those who came before us to make to make it possible for us to be where we are now. Okay, and so we are better able to craft a story or another level of existence because of the ones before us. That also that we adaptable, as I was saying earlier with Virginia Whoop. You know, we don't have to be have everything like it's supposed to be. The man has to be always twenty four seven the the breadwinner. Well, what about during certain times when the men couldn't even hold a job good because many people said that they that was a, a means of further pulling back the black family. You know, he couldn't hold a job with, you know what, a real strong family would say, no worries, sweetie, I got this. You know, they, they maybe it's just a domestic job, but nonetheless, there's money and we can eat and we have a roof over our heads. You know, don't let anybody define or limit you as a, as a, as, as a unit. You decide no matter what the circumstance is, I'll make it. So the guy would say something like maybe until something else comes along, baby, I got I got this, you know, I'll cook the dinner or whatever. Take care of the kids. Make sure they're in school. Do whatever. You work together. You have to understand and appreciate the adaptability, understanding and ambition, which is another characteristic of African womanism. It takes two to tango. We were getting smaller salaries and still are. You just don't know it. They you find. And, and I, I, I said to a group uh, here at the university uh, last semester, I was asked to do a thing on anti-racism. And I said, uh, let's look at it. You know, we we uh, we have this situation where, uh, you know, we want same thing that anybody else wants. We want high salaries and jobs and positions and all that kind of stuff. And you look around and I said, I look and I said, wow, they're getting all the great jobs and all the titles. And oh, my God, they're making all the money. Are they really, really that smart? You know, are they that brilliant? And then I said, or are they just white? What kind of incentive is that when you really think about it? You don't have to be like me, you know, working to make sure that you have something significant and something powerful to offer so that you can even be given the job. They don't have to do that. They're white. What does that mean? That means that you don't really have that great of an incentive. You know, you can just be a, a meteorologist, but because you're white, you get the big job. You're the president vice president, whatever, because you're white. It doesn't mean you're brilliant. It doesn't mean that. And we have to understand that you cannot assume that because they have the titles and make the money, that they're the most equipped and the, and, and that they're the, uh, the smartest and the most brilliant. That's not true. We've seen blacks back in slavery who've shown themselves to be indispensable. I mean, look at Benjamin Banneker, for example. I mean, if you talk about, and, and I remember seeing on TV last week, the lady said, you, do you really have to have black studies or Africana studies for all the fields? But say, for example, if you in math or in science or whatever, you don't need that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Because people always identify those persons who have been in the forefront of those different things that have been, happens, discoveries, you know, inventions, etc. So when you talk about 
in astro- astronomy. You talk about astronomy, science. Well, who is the number one astronomer? Astronomer is Benjamin Banneker. He started that whole line of uh, the um, Almanac series. That's Benjamin Banneker. He was also a great mathematician. He also was a surveyor for Washington D.C. and and created the first clock, American clock, with all American parts. Born in America, made in America. You like that, right? Well, how about expecting respecting a man who made the first clock with all American parts? You can't talk about mathematics, for example, and not think about those three women who were all mathematicians who were responsible for the success of Apollo 11. Okay, they were mathematicians and they were also engineers. They were excellent. And you and, and you can't talk about those ladies. You can't talk about uh, Miss Johnson. You can't talk about Miss Vaughn. You can't talk about Miss Jackson. Well, you ought to. Uh, Mr. Mr. Armstrong did. He wasn't about to board that uh, spaceship and go into space without their endorsement, without that, they having made sure all the figures were lining up properly. Okay? He understood that. And so we have to realize that what it's always appropriate to talk about Africana. Mm-hmm. It's just that people have not given us credit for the things that we've done. And we have to speak up, like, for example, Frederick Douglass, when they ask him, at least uh, how, how it was a decade, a century rather before 1876, 4th of July, big, big thing, you know, uh, the signing of the, uh, uh, the um, what is it? Oh, God, I can't even think of it. But anyway, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that we all entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence, okay? 1776, wonderful, all right? But at the same time, when they asked Frederick Douglass to speak, he says, do you mean to mock me, fellow citizens? (laughs) To ask me to speak for your 4th of July? You may rejoice. I may mourn, you know, because yeah. we're still what in slavery. It wasn't eighteen sixty-three, mm-hmm. or eighteen sixty-five for the unfortunate ones who lived in. We were just talking about uh, Texas. They didn't get Juneteenth didn't come until two and a half years later when they realized they were free. Really sad, you know. But I'm saying that there you are. We're talking about all those things in mothering and nurturing, not the last, but certainly. Very important. Mother, the woman is the culture bearer. She's the one that passes on to the kids very openly and continually. We have a situation oftentimes where the mother is around the kids oftentimes more frequently, longer hours than the male counterpart. Doesn't mean that he's not very important. He has something very important to say. But that mother is the culture bearer. She's very important. So so we don't we don't want to give it all away to the listeners. Y'all have to go buy the book. (laughs) <laughs> but as you can see, this is an important contribution to the to, to to black culture, to the way that we think, to the way that we move, and it helps inform and give another um, way of being, right? And I think that's really important. So uh, this may seem like a, a silly uh, question, but um, can men be Africana womanists? Very good, very good question. I love it. I say, number one is men are men and women are women. When we say African womanism, we're referring to the female, the woman and her role 
in uh, in the making of a, of, a, of a real nice niche for herself and her family. The man can be a supporter. He cannot be an Africana womanist. He yeah. can be a supporter, a follower, uh, a whatever, a participant in the activities because there's an Africana male. In my second book, I do have the Africana male. I think it's the second one. The second one was Africana Woman's Literary Theory. It was in the third book. I have the uh, 18 characteristics of the Africana male. And I, I think I did actually in the uh, first book. Yes, I did. In the first book, I did at least uh, enumerate those mm-hmm. uh, commensary characteristics in the very first book. Yes, indeed. Uh, I In the conclusion, what I did was enumerate those characteristics. And a couple of them were a little slightly different, okay? Mm-hmm. Because we expect a man, for example, to be uh, the uh, supporter, okay? Not a dictator. Listen, I'm not, no wife of mine is going to be coming in after, after sundown. Listen, I'm not, I'm not having it. That's it. Excuse me, honey. Well, what about, sweetheart, if you're going to be late or whatever, you know, just make sure you call me right before you, you know, arrive in a sense so I can kind of be looking out for you because I don't want anything to happen. That's, I want a protector. He's a protector. If we're out in the element and a big dog jumps out and he goes, sweetheart, you get to the front and you can take care of this. You're strong. No, I'm not that strong. I think we better realize that you got to lose my number after this one. You know, I don't want a man who can't support me. I like support. I remember I was very young then, had a little British Leland living in New Orleans, teaching at Southern. And so I had a little, I was raising a little hatchback up. I was getting my groceries out. You know, I don't want to go grocery shopping every day like New Yorkers do. <laughs> so when I go once a week or once every other week, I get all I can get. And so I'm scuffling, trying to get everything together. And the guy looks at me. He said, man, he said, can I, can I help you? I must have been in my 20s then. He said, can I help you? I said, oh, most definitely. Thank you so much. He said, well, you know, you got to be careful. He said, because the women are quick to tell you, I'm not exactly an that you know. I can do this. I got this. No, I don't got it. We are biologically different. Okay. I didn't tell you. I had the baby this year, baby. You're going to have the one, have the one next year. No, mm-hmm. no, it's not like that. It's still, you know, important. What? roles we play but we have to understand that we are biologically different Mm. okay and so therefore yes the answer is no a male cannot be an african womanist he can be a supporter okay okay we can be a supporter all right exactly now you know a a participant in the movement we don't separate the man is always invited because he's a part of it Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. So um, who are the some of the, the biggest supporters of, of Africana womanism? Oh, we have some wonderful supporters. We have uh, endorsers like Malefi Asante, the first one. Malefi calls Africana womanism the female um, a component, a part of uh, Afrocentricity. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, this is what he says. He did the afterword. And it was so funny. People said, well, why would you let a male do the afterword in your book? This is my second book. I said, excuse me, did you say my book? If it's my book, who's in charge of, of, of what goes in my book, if it's my book? I am. And I can't imagine not having a person I want doing the afterword and no better person than Malefi Asante. He says here, the fact of the matter is that Africana womanism is a response to the need for collective definition. You understand? That's what we're trying to do. We come, we're trying to come to a decision of what definition we're going to embrace. A collective definition and the recreation of the authentic agenda. That is the birthright of every living person. I love it. 
-hmm. And then he further says at the bottom, he says, this book, to be certain, is critical to a full understanding of the substantive, uh, substantive, I'm sorry, contributions of women scholars to our total liberation. We are in it together. That's what I keep saying. We are in it together. He said, it is true, as Dr. Alma Mazama has observed. Alma Mazama is a scholar from Guadalupe, but she's been at Temple for quite some years. She observed that the African womanism seeks to correct the total inadequacy of feminism and to appreciate the reality of Africana women. In fact, what Hudson Weems uh, demonstrates, uh, Maleficent says, is that no transformation can take place without a rethinking of the way Africana women have been viewed and view themselves in Western world. That's very important. And remember, if you want, that's two right there. But to get a whole collective, what about looking at um, how uh, Africana womanism is uh, construed by a whole group. There must be at least seven uh, scholars from all over the country uh, who compiled uh, the number one anthology in the country, Africana anthology called uh, Call and Response. Very, very important uh, anthology. And I use it for my class every semester. This is uh, the general editor, of course, for that is Dr. Uh, uh, Hill, Patricia Liggins Hill. She says, or they say, the first African-American woman intellectual to formulate a position on Africana womanism is Clonora Hudson Weems, author of the 1993 groundbreaking study, Africana Womanism Reclaiming Ourselves. Taken, this is very important, taking the strong position that black women should not pattern their liberation after Eurocentric feminism, but after the historic and triumphant woman of African descent, Hudson Weems has launched a new critical discourse in the Black women's literary movement. I am so proud of that. To get that endorsement from those top scholars from all over the country is a whole lot. And I am humbled at their uh, opinion and respect and support of the theory of Africana womanism. There are many, and I don't know how much how much time you have, but just get the book. Look at the endorsements <clears throat> on the last book endorsement. There is one by Doc, uh, Reverend Dr. Um, uh, Deborah Walker King, who is an endowed chair of the University of Florida. There is also uh, Dr. Mawati Asant, uh, Mawati, um, oh, his first name is Etia uh, Mawati. He is the dean of faculty at the University of Zimbabwe that hosted the first international African womanism conference in 2009. No, sorry, 2010. That was marvelous. And he, he has, in fact, there was a book that came out in 2012 of scholars from all over here uh, in the States, but as well uh, throughout Africa, uh, University of South Africa, Botswana, mm -hmm. as well as the universities throughout uh, Zimbabwe. It was marvelous. And he still holds that banner in uh, Zimbabwe. There's Dr. Uh, Adele Newsom hortz uh, who is uh, now, um, interestingly, she is the uh, chair of uh, women and gender studies at um, uh, Morgan State University wonderful scholar. I met her when she invited me to speak when she was chair in Africana Studies at the University of Michigan and later became the dean at the University of uh, Wisconsin at Oshkosh. She is back uh, home in a sense with uh, the black school and she is enjoying it, giving it great direction. And uh, 
you know, it just, how can I forget Dr. Dolores Aldrich as an endowed chair at Emory University? I mean, Dolores is wonderful. She was two-term president of um, National Council for Black Studies. And I remember Dolores saying to a group, she says, you know, why don't you just grow up? You know, I was, I thought I was a feminist too. But when, but when Kalora came out with her African womanism, I realized that that was really it. Dolores has so supported. She did the forward to African Women's Literary Theory. She did the endorsement for the first book that came out in 2019. The theory book came out in 2009, uh, 2004. But uh, she is absolutely, she, she kind of related to Dr. King, who was first just civil rights. But before King died, he was human rights. He began to, in the Canadian Mass Lecture Series, address uh, and talk about uh, the Vietnam War. And the circumstance with blacks in those in the in this uh, you know Vietnam War, he spoke of the interlocutory destiny of people all over the world. And at last, he started talking about our uh, demanding economic parity, which is probably why they took him out. They don't want to share the money, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Civil rights, we can hold hands and go to school and love each other, but let's not talk about the money, okay? Yes. Right. So, what would you say? Um, Dr. Hudson Williams is the ultimate goal of, of Africana womanism. Okay. Uh, that we are, everything that we do, we're leading ultimately to uh, total uh, uh, freedom. I mean, real freedom, uh, freedom of choice. Uh, we, are, we, are, we, are, we, want, we want true uh, salvation. We want to uh, eradicate all that racial dominance uh, connotes and denotes. We just want to get rid of it. In other words, we want to be equal human beings. Okay, so it's the ultimate survival of all African people forever. That's all. I'm tired of talking about it. Let's put it out there on the table. Let's look at it and see the legitimacy of it, which is why I insist that once we truly debunk racism, we can be free forever. Just trying to get people to acknowledge that it exists. And so, yeah, let's try to do something about it. That's not enough. When I show you how ludicrous this thing is, racism, how absurd it is, how you want to say that black people are uh, inferior, that's ludicrous. You need to look at the book that I just finished on uh, legendary Africana people. From You know, I won't give you all the secrets there. You know, it's another whole book. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, Doctor. <laughs> Doctor Green, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But at any rate, uh, you did the, uh, uh, you know, you did a blurb, jacket blurb for it when it comes out. Anyway, bottom line is, uh, uh, when you start understanding that when you talk about blood plasma, which is very important, right away you're gonna think about the man who made the blood stick around for a limit of time. You're talking about Doctor Charles Drew. You know, it goes agency. That's who we are. We've always been a part of it. Mm-hmm. So, so I, again, I, I appreciate your time, all of this wisdom that you're providing for, for the listeners and the watchers. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your work on Emmett Till. And <laughs> this so important much. work that, that has gone, um, I think, in a lot of ways unnoticed. Yeah. Um, it's you something know, that we, we really need to just get into um, for a quick minute. Can you tell us about your work on Emmett Till, please? Okay, first of all, uh, I went to the University of Iowa in 1985. Uh, uh, and uh, 
I, uh, during my tenure there, I was the uh, only uh, Ford fellow in the state of Iowa. I was chosen one of, uh, out of uh, over 900 uh, applicants. I became one of 30. Very proud of that. Uh, but even more so, uh, I, the thing of Emmett Till was not an easy thing. I didn't just say I want to do Emmett Till. That was the end of the story. I had just signed a contract prior to going to Iowa uh, to do the first co-author, the first book on Toni Morrison that came out in uh, 1990, uh, March, before I uh, came to uh, Missouri. And uh, it was very interesting. Um, this, this whole thing with uh, Emmett Till, uh, I went to Iowa and told them that uh, they thought I was going to write on black women writers because I was, you know, a critic, a literary critic and had uh, published uh, uh, articles and things on people like William Brooks, you know, and you name it, you know, Richard Wright, you know, and things like that. But I said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I decided that I want to focus on Emmett Till as a true catalyst of the civil rights movement. And my chair said, uh, Clonora? Uh, haven't you looked at the materials that are already out on uh, 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 the civil rights movement? I mean, how are you going to, uh, let's just say this, this is my chair. He said, that's virtually impossible uh, to say that Emmett Till was the catalyst of the movement when it has already been established by all historians that it was Rosa Parks' refusal, December 1st, 1955. I said, but Emmett Till happened three months and three days prior to that. This is 1980s now, mid 80s, 1986, and I'm defending it. I said I had to defend that uh, uh, that proposal at a separate, uh, uh, you know, uh, gathering with the committee in the fall of 86. I said Emmett Till happened before. It was, in fact, what set the stage for the Montgomery bus boycott. It, uh, the, the, the incident was a Carl Celebra, the, the murder, the lynching of a 14 year old kid for simply whistling at a white woman. And, and, and he goes down like that. It's a brutal lynching. Uh, I said, no, 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 no. I said, that was the thing that got the ball to rolling. They said, well, listen, why can't you, one of, one of the committee members said, why can't you say it was a significant part uh, in the factor, I should say, in the rise of the civil rights movement? I mimicked that. I said, it was far more than a significant factor in the rise of the civil rights movement. It was the impetus. They said, mm. well, Laura, what happens if you can't defend a dissertation since all historians have agreed? I said, it's simple. I don't get a PhD and I'm willing to take that chance, but I will not write on anything else for my doctoral dissertation. That was how hard it was. And I was about to just wrap it up, fold it up and say in a story at this institution. And they said, okay, we'll give you a try. We have nothing to lose. You do. And, then I, and, and they said, tell me, how can you look at all these stars? It's, it's wonderful. I look at James. I look at uh, uh, the father of uh, historiography. I look at Qualls. Nowhere in his whole book does he mention Emmett Till, Benjamin Qualls. I look at uh, even uh, uh, John Hope Franklin. He never mentions Emmett Till's name. From slavery to freedom, he says a, a, a Negro boy from Chicago was murdered for allegedly whistling. And by the way, he didn't allegedly whistle. He whistled. I told Mamie, you got to stop saying he allegedly whistled. This was me, Clemora. You know, why Why did you wait so long to come to me? I said, because you're the icing for the cake, Mamie. That comes last. I had to figure this thing out. She said, well, I wish you would say one thing. You say that Emmett Whistler, I wish you say allegedly. I said, Mamie, that's an insult when you really think about it. Emmett did not allegedly whistle. He whistled. So what? He was a 14-year-old kid from Chicago in the South, being challenged by his little cousins and friends. Bet you won't whistle the white woman down here. Bet you I will. That's it. He was mannish.
He was going through the Ristu Passage, as they would say, the rites of passage, from boyhood to manhood. That's all. And he whistled. And you think that that's, and, and you say, well, you know, she said, I, I, I taught him to just whistle out a word if he had, you know, got tied up because he had a speech impediment, having had, um, uh, what was it, um, childhood illness uh, that he had. And so she said, uh, I said, maybe that's like telling the, 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 the white folk, here it is. Uh, they made a mistake. They thought he whistled and they killed him. And so I said, Mamie, it was far more than a mistake. It was a crime. Yes, he whistled, but it didn't make him a bad boy. She agreed there. You're right. He wasn't a bad boy. He was a good one. Okay, I said, so you got to stop saying that they that he allegedly whistled. He whistled. Emmett is probably saying, Mom, yes, I whistled. You're right. But please stop condemning that act as being the worst. He didn't understand Southern etiquette. He didn't understand that that was an American taboo. It was simple. What really, really impressed me was when Ford Foundation, this is incredible, invited me to do the opening plenary. I'm like, I didn't even have a PhD. I was a dissertator at that time, writing. And I was just so, oh God, I was so beside myself in a way. I said, you want me to do the opening plenary the same day that Condoleezza Rice does the afternoon plenary? And the Dr. John Hope Franklin, one of those that I kind of like put it straight that he didn't even mention his name. Okay. I said, and I'm going to do the opening plenary. That's always held for the postdocs. They would do the plenaries. But another thing that happened that was so beautiful is that right after that presentation, I got the occasion to meet Dr. John, James uh, John um, Blessingame from Yale University. Oh, mm -hmm. boy, was that something. And he came straight to me, raised his hand and came straight up. He said, let me tell you one thing. He said, when you really think about it, Hudson Weems is, it was Hudson in, Hudson is absolutely right. We historians missed it. And he wrote a blurb on the back of the book when it came out. The book came out six years later. Emmett Till, The Sacrificial Lamb of the Civil Rights Movement is an outgrowth of my doctoral dissertation. Emmett Lewis Till, The Impetus of the Modern Civil Rights Movement. And then, of course, you had Sierra Lincoln that I loved Sierra Lincoln, an endowed chair, a special professor at Duke University. These are top scholars now. He said, Hudson Wings challenged the most sacred shibboleths of the origins of the civil rights movement. If I weren't the first, could he say that? He said, not everyone will want to agree with what she has to say. And they didn't for a decade and a half. They don't want to agree. He said, but few would lay the book down before they have. She has her say. And she says a lot America needs to hear again right now. Are you with wow. me? I'm talking about, I got top scholars and even went beyond that. They were at various universities speaking out about this as being very important. And even there's a, a reference to uh, uh, a Skip Gates, Henry Louis Gates, and uh, Skip has a, a copy of my dissertation. He says that it is because of um, uh, the work, he said, everything that we know, all that we really know about Emmett Till is because of Dr. Clenora Hudson Weems' work on, on, on that murder. I mean, he admitted it. And then last, we have the, uh, the uh, producer, uh, Barry Marrow, who wrote Rain Man. I mean, he says, uh, he makes a beautiful statement at the end of, uh, and you can see all this on the web page, uh, but he says this, he says, um, for nearly 20 years, Hudson Weems was the lone voice calling for a fresh assessment 
of the true historical significance of the murder of Emmett Till. That voice has been um, lately uh, joined by a host of others, but there's this harmony in the choir. They don't acknowledge it. And that's the way they do, because if I had this, and when I finished that, this, that presentation, the podium was flooded. Oxford University Press was interested in publishing it. University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Oh, yes, I'm going to say it. They all wanted it, but you know what they wanted? They wanted me to alter the focus. In other words, Teal was not the catalyst, but he was a significant factor. I said, no, then you don't want my, my book. I did a dissertation on this. That's what I did it for. I'm a PhD now. But to change <laughs> it now, and if I had not stuck with that just to get it published, I didn't care about a publication. I already had a Toni Morrison book out, 1990. So no, I didn't. I didn't care whether or not they published it. I went to a small press, and that's what they. That's what happens when you go to when you choose to go to a smaller press just to get published. You sometimes have to surrender the real deal. Had I not stuck with that, it wouldn't be a household word. People are saying, you know, that this person is the first to do a full length study on MTL. That's that's not true. Go back to the. You can't change copyright. The book, the dissertation was copyrighted in 1988. You tell me who in May 1988 wrote a book on TLS Callus? Nobody. That is so important. I mean, and, and so that's why I wanted to, to at least touch on it a little because I think that that's, it's important that people go back, do their due diligence, do their homework and get, get the truth and get the facts. Now, before I, I could talk to you all day, you know that, um, <laughs> you, you know that. But, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to end um, with um, you sharing the the poem that oh. you that you started oh. to 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 um I would to love present. to and, I and got your I, I think, yeah I, I don't okay. think we could close this out any better than you reciting that for okay our here, okay here you go don't you know by now girl we're all in it together you hear everybody saying it now right <laughs> family centered centrality that's it we're going nowhere without the other. That means the men, the women, and the children, too. Truly collectively working. I got your back, boo. Racism means the violation of our constitutional rights, which can create ongoing legal and even physical fights. This first priority for humankind is doing what it must do. Echo it out, First Lady. Michelle, I got your back, boo. Classism is a hoarding of financial privileges. Privileges we must all have now in pursuit of happiness. Without a piece of the financial pie, we are doomed to have a coup. Remember, each must protect the other. I got your back, boo. Sexism, the final abominable sin of female subjugation, is a battle we must wage right now to restore our family relations. All forms of sin inevitably fall under one of these three offenses. Africana womanism, I got your back, boo, corrects our common senses. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so very much. <laughs> Listeners, you. I present to you none other than Dr. Clonora Hudson Weems. Doctor, thank you so much for your time, your and wisdom, you. your intellect, and sharing your intellectual capital with all of us. Thank My pleasure. So and it has been a joy speaking with you, Dr. Clonora. <laughs> 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 I look forward to some more of these uh, conversations. Oh, okay? We're going to have quite a few more. You take care. Be okay. well, and okay. we'll, again, thank you so very much. Thank you. Bye-bye now. And bye to all of you. Please read. Right. Let's get the book, Africana Womanism. And support, 
and support the movement of Africana womanism, don't forget, click on Cash App and support True us. We're going to put that link down in the bottom. We'll make sure it's there. True womanism. Um, yes. The dollar sign true is this sub, to support the movement of, of African Africana womanism. womanism. Of Thank African you. Womanism. Thank you. Well, take care. Be well. Bye-bye.